tireless bipartisan effort, bipartisan legislation. It needs to be done in a bipartisan fashion. The bipartisan attention on this issue. Patchwork of state laws. The patchwork of state laws. The patchwork of state laws. The patchwork of state laws. This patchwork of laws. The current patchwork system. The current patchwork of state laws. A patchwork of state laws. Now have a patchwork of laws. A patchwork of different laws. A patchwork of 50 state rules, 50 different patchwork laws. Confused by the patchwork of laws. A preemptive framework. Work towards a national standard. Federal framework that supports national NIL legislation, established a national framework, national uniformity. A uniform national standard to seek a national standard if there's a national NIL law, a national standard, and some national enforcement mechanism. Some kind of national enforcement entity. Legislation on NIL enforcement uh, on a national level. We need a national law, but the national level the national standard on NIL is urgently needed. We have an opportunity here to get NIL legislation, a national standard passed, but we don't need to muddy the water with collective bargaining and, and uh, revenue sharing and all these other things. National standard. When working on a national NIL framework. This national standard, compliance with national standards at a national level by a lack of uniform rules. A lack of a uniform protection for college athletes across the country. Without a uniform standard and uniform educational information, we need a law that provides uniformity. It should establish a uniform national standard. The laws are inconsistent with no uniform guidelines. Uniform across the country. Clearly that uniform NIL regulations are needed. To be clear, what I'm suggesting is not an approach decided upon the uh, NCAA and various conferences, but rather by collegiate athletes themselves. I recently received a letter from 15 collegiate athletes from the ACC that emphasized this point, and I want to quote these students, if that's okay, Madam Chair. It's clear we need a federal baseline, is what they say, that re-levels the playing field, and we need one soon. The students also explain the most important factor in legislating on NIL is to protect all collegiate athletes, especially those outside the revenue generating sports like football and basketball. I also want to point out that these students didn't ask for healthcare mandates or guaranteed scholarships or for private rights of action. The risk of such factors will result in cutting the very sports programs we are working on to protect. After all, there's a difference between being a representative of a school and being a full-time employee of a school. I agree wholeheartedly with these students. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found in all the major third-party podcast directories. And if you want to reach out to me, please shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is March 26th, 2023. And it's been over a month since I got up an episode. And I said in my last episode that I'm working on another project where I have transitioned into the interview format for a different podcast. But I wanted to get an episode up to talk about 
a very interesting op-ed that came out last Thursday on March 23rd in the New York Times, and it was authored by Notre Dame President Father John Jenkins and Notre Dame Athletics Director Jack Swarbrick, and it received a lot of attention. The title of the guest essay, that's how it was described by the New York Times, is College Sports Are a Treasure. Don't turn them into the minor leagues. The uh, bottom line with this op-ed is that college sports are in crisis, and the only entity that can save the day is the United States Congress. This was an open plea for congressional intervention, and it was essentially a lobbying speech. The president of the University of Notre Dame and Notre Dame's athletics director used the opinion page of the New York Times to make the case for federal protections and immunities that would end the athletes' rights movement. This op-ed is really troubling on a number of levels, and I'm going to go through the article and really break it down and explain what Jenkins and Swarbrick were trying to do here, how they went about it tactically, and importantly, the consequence of what they had to say, because it was very cleverly written and really misleading in terms of what precisely the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries really want from Congress. And I'll get to that in a minute. But what I really found interesting was the uh, response and the rollout of this op-ed. At or about the time that the article came out, there was an article in Sports Illustrated written by Ross Dellinger, who I have characterized as one of the small group of reporters that tends to have the inside track on getting out NCAA Power Five friendly narratives into the public consciousness. And this was no exception. So Dellinger published an article that really amplified what Jenkins and Swarbrick had to say. And he really pumped them up. And Swarbrick is one of the most respected athletics directors in all of college sports and on and on. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. But apparently Dellinger also got an interview with Swarbrick, and, and he talks about that as well. And, and some of Swarbrick's comments in that interview are almost incoherent. They're so contradictory, and they just don't make sense. And that's true for some of the points in this op-ed. But there was also some pushback, and I thought that was interesting. Uh, Andy Staples, The Athletic, owned by The New York Times, by the way. That's an interesting relationship, I think. He published an article later in the day that pointed out some of the problems with the op-ed and also this interview that uh, Swarbrick did with Dellinger. But as always, the media, the mainstream media and the commentariat miss the most important aspect of this op-ed. And that is not just the fact of the article, but the timing of it. I mean, th this seemed to come out of the blue, and I really think that's what led to some of the pushback. It's like, where the hell did this come from? And where have Jenkins and Swarbrick been on this theme? And that's a very good question. But to understand what's going on right now in the behind-the-scenes secret campaign to end the athletes' rights movement, you have to understand how this battle is being waged. And it's not being waged by university presidents and chancellors and NCAA committees and conference committees. 
of interested stakeholders that are truly representative. It's being waged behind the scenes by lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations experts. And I'm going to talk in a little more detail here in a minute about the lobbying strategy and the history of it. I'll give you a brief history of it to put this into context. And I've said this time and time again in this podcast, when analyzing what's happening in college sports, particularly when it comes to the regulation of college sports and the attempts by the Power Five and now to a lesser extent, the NCAA, to gain iron-fisted control over the regulatory model, you can't look at a single event in isolation. You have to look at the timeline at what else is going on at or about the same time to really understand how coordinated and integrated the Power Five and NCAA's campaign has been in their engagement with Congress. So why did this op-ed come out on March 23rd? Because three days from now, there is going to be a hearing in the House of Representatives in the Energy and Commerce Committee's subcommittee on innovation, data, and commerce. The subcommittee chair of that hearing is Gus Bill Arrakis, a Republican from Florida. And Mr. Bill Arrakis has played a very important role on the House side in carrying the bags for what the Power Five and to a lesser extent the NCAA want from Congress. Mr. Bill Arrakis has assumed the mantle in the House from Republican Representative Anthony Gonzalez uh, from Ohio and Steve Shabbat also a Republican from Ohio, who were really doing the NCAA and Power Five's bidding back in the initial engagement through 2020 and 2021. But Mr. Gonzalez chose not to run again for re-election, and Mr. Shabbat lost his House seat, and he had held that seat for about 20 years. So one of the questions that I've talked quite a bit about in the podcast is, you know, when are the Power Five and NCAA going to re-engage with Congress? And what channels is it going to run through? And one of the central questions I had in that regard was, who's going to fill in now for Gonzalez and Shabbat? Who's going to be the face of the Power Five NCAA campaign in Congress to end the athletes' rights movement on the Republican side? And I had hypothesized that it was going to be Mr. Bill Arrakis, because of his involvement in a hearing from September of 2021 that I'm going to talk a little bit about here and compare and contrast that hearing with what I think this hearing on uh, March 29th, just a few days from now, is going to look like. But he's now the golden boy and all of the uh, lobbying and the congressional activity on the House side is going to run through Bill Arrakis. And one of the important things to understand is that when the NCAA and the Power Five first engaged Congress really in the fall of 2019. I'm going to give a, a little summary of the timeline here. They went to the Senate. Why did they go to the Senate in 2019? Because the Republicans controlled the Senate. And this campaign to end the athletes' rights movement has run through Republican legislators in both chambers. And now the re-engagement is beginning in the House. Why, do you think? Well, for the same reason it began in the Senate in 2019, 2020, it's because the Republicans now control the House. And the strategy here is to you know, get a jumpstart in Congress. And the timing of this is important because it's during March Madness. I'm going to talk about the importance of that from a value standpoint when I talk about the New York Times op-ed. 
But what I want to do real quick is just give you a little timeline on the history of these hearings and the coordination of this campaign. And, and it is very sophisticated, very well organized, and it is being orchestrated by some of the most powerful lobbying firms in American history, all working together on behalf of the Power Five and Notre Dame and the NCAA to snuff out the athletes' rights movement and eliminate the only threats that exist from the athlete side in the college sports landscape, and that is Power Five football and Power Five men's basketball. Those are the only two products that matter in this discussion. And as I'm going to explain when I do a compare and contrast with the September 2021 hearing in the House and what I think this hearing is going to look like on Wednesday, the NCAA and the Power Five are going to conflate the interests of other athlete stakeholder groups to make it appear as if they aren't targeting profit athletes in football and men's basketball. And that is one of the most dishonest aspects of their engagement with Congress and the values-based themes that they have used to try to snuff out the athletes' rights movement. What has happened since 2019 and the impetus for the Power Five and the NCAA really going headfirst into Congress was the backwash of O'Bannon. And, you know, O'Bannon, the name, image, and likeness lawsuit in California that challenged the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness, didn't give the athletes the remedy that I think people were hoping for on the front end of O'Bannon. O'Bannon didn't really live up to the aspirations that I think a lot of people saw in it beginning in 2009 when that lawsuit was filed. And on the backside of O'Bannon, the NCAA and Power Five actually, on the law that came out of the Ninth Circuit, landed in a pretty good place because the Ninth Circuit and O'Bannon drew this distinction between education-related benefits, which would be permissible, and non-education-related benefits, which were not. And they uh, drew that distinction in large measure based on deference to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism. It was in many ways uh, a favorable ruling for the NCAA. And a product of that is that the NCAA came away from that threat, and they viewed it as, as a really big threat at the time, with a firewall against any market for the value of the athlete services, because that would be unrelated to education and that framework carried into Austin because Austin was also a Ninth Circuit case and was bound by O'Bannon. So you started to see some initiative to try to get some of the name, image, and likeness benefits that O'Bannon didn't provide. You had the Mark Walker bill in March of 2019 that was going to strip the NCAA of its nonprofit status unless it offered meaningful name, image, and likeness benefits. The NCAA beat that back very quickly and aggressively. Then you had SB 206, the Fair Pay to Play Act, coming into shape, and you had this really important new threat, this, this external regulatory threat from state legislatures. And the Power Five and the NCAA had a very important choice to make when SB 206 was signed into law in October of 2019 by California Governor Gavin Newsom, and that is, do they continue their whack-a-mole strategy with external threats? In federal litigation, for example, they had basically they would take a threat that popped up and they'd deal with it as a single, you know, one-off threat. They'd whack it down. They were very successful in doing that because of the traditional deference that the federal judiciary had given to NCAA regulatory authority because of some offhand language in the Board of Regents decision from 1984. But this 
California law posed a new threat. And so they were deciding whether to deal with that state law as a one-off whack-a-mole through a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit under the Dormant Commerce Clause, or do they step back and look at their chessboard and look at whether they could come up with a comprehensive strategy to deal with all of these external regulatory threats from federal courts, from state legislatures, from federal administrative agencies, from free markets that were putting an enormous amount of pressure on the NCAA and Power Five's regulatory authority. And they chose to go on offense. This was a really important transition in how the NCAA and Power Five viewed these external regulatory threats. And there was a secret meeting in December of 2019 that uh, was held among Power Five conference commissioners and presidents and chancellors. It was a Power Five only show. It occurred off the books. The only reason we know about that meeting is that a sports journalist named Andy Wittry served public records requests and got these documents. And, and the documents showed the playbook. If, if you want to know the secret playbook of the Power Five's congressional campaign, Wittry got that through these documents and he wrote about them, but nobody in the mainstream media picked up that story. There were 15 people at this meeting, all men, 12 white men, Nobody from the NCAA was invited to this meeting because part of the Power Five strategy was that they wanted to engage Congress alongside the NCAA. The NCAA had their own lobbying firm. The Power Five really didn't have an organized strategy, but they were concerned that the NCAA wasn't really up to the task. And they had some concerns about Mark Emmert's engagement with Congress, and he had pissed a lot of people off, and they were concerned that he wasn't the best messenger. So they came up with this strategy that operated beside the NCAA. They didn't want to be in direct conflict with what the NCAA was doing in Congress, but they wanted to, to make very clear that they were calling the shots here and that they had the biggest stake in the outcome of any federal legislation. And they wanted their interests front and center. It just reflects this historical arrogance that the Power Five have had, that they're special, that they are the business of college sports. And that is true. And this was a Power Five football show. Men's basketball is an important product, but big time Power Five football interests were driving the train here. And a few very important strategy items came out of this secret meeting in December of 2019. First, the Power Five had a sense of urgency. They wanted things to move quickly, but they didn't want to be the face of this movement. They wanted to call the shots behind the scenes, but they didn't want this branded as a Power Five initiative. And they wanted to keep it narrow. They just wanted to focus on name, image, and likeness. And most importantly, in order to deal with all of these external regulatory threats in one fell swoop, they proposed three extraordinary federal protections and immunities that they wanted to obtain from Congress. First, they wanted the federal preemption of state name, image, and likeness laws. And federal preemption is a constitutional power derived from Article 6 of the United States Constitution and the Supremacy Clause that allows 
the federal government in certain cases involving vital national interests to tell the states that they can't regulate in a certain area. That's been used traditionally in uh, areas like national defense, national security, civil rights, the environment, very important national interests. And they don't want it to use that extraordinary federal authority constitutional authority to take states off the regulatory map. Then they also wanted antitrust immunity to take federal courts off the table. Then they also wanted a provision that athletes could not be deemed employees of their university. And the no employee provision would have eliminated any pathway that athletes might have to achieve rights under the National Labor Relations Act, and then engage in collective bargaining. Because in order to have the protections of the NLRA, you also have to be an employee. That's a threshold requirement. So the uh, Power Five and the NCAA working in tandem with the Power Five actually calling the shots behind the scene, they roll into 2020. And they lay the foundation for the first of seven hearings that would occur in uh, 2020 and 2021. But they engaged the Senate because the Republicans controlled the Senate. And this was a partisan initiative. And the NCAA and Power Five had Republican senators ready to do their bidding to lay the foundations for a bill that would give the Power Five of the NCAA, these three crucial federal protections and immunities. Uh, that first hearing occurred on February 11th of 2020 in the Senate Commerce Committee. Commerce has original jurisdiction over sports matters. And by the time that hearing occurred, all Power Five conferences had hired some of the most powerful lobbying firms in Washington, D.C. to lay the groundwork to set the narrative and to get these issues on the table. And you just can't walk into Congress and say, hey, I, I want to eliminate states from the uh, regulatory field in the industry that we're in. We want antitrust immunity so that we don't have to comply with free competition laws. Oh, and we don't want to have to treat our laborers as employees. So we want a provision that says they can't be employees. There has to be a plausible justification for that. And that justification was name, image, and likeness, quote unquote, compensation. That was the Trojan horse that the Power Five and NCAA used to get in front of Congress. And on this issue of setting the narrative, that is so, so important. And in that December 10th, 2019 meeting, one of the important themes was messaging. We want to control the message. We want to take control of this narrative, and we want to make sure that we are able to make the case, not just to Congress, but publicly through our public relations campaign, that we are trying to get these athletes some name, image, and likeness compensation. Oh, but we can only do that if we get these three um, extraordinary federal protections and immunities. So that first hearing in February of 2020 was really a dog and pony show for the Power Five and NCAA interests. It was very carefully orchestrated. It was very carefully framed. And these witnesses, the NCAA Power Five witnesses, were on task. They didn't deviate. And they used all the buzzwords. There were six witnesses. Five were in the tank 
for the NCAA and the Power Five. And the very first witness who testified was Anthony Gonzalez, the golden boy from the House. And you know, representatives can testify in Congress as well as sit on the dais and ask the questions. And so Gonzalez was the face of this, and he was a very appealing face. He played football at Ohio State, then he played in the NFL for the Indianapolis Colts, a a great guy. I'm not criticizing him personally, but he was really the bag man in the house for the NCAA. And then you had the panel just loading up the talking points on the value of the student athlete and the importance of amateurism, all the usual talking points that the NCAA and Power Five have used to get their way with decision makers. And interestingly, at that first hearing, you didn't hear a breath of the concept of preemption or antitrust immunity or athletes can't be employees. They did not use those specific asks in the context of them getting protective federal legislation. They just wanted to get the talking points on the table so that they then could use the Senate to formulate a strategy and get some proposed legislation from Republican senators that gave them everything that they wanted. Preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees. And then there were three additional hearings in 2020 and a couple of other committees that really served to normalize this massive ask. The NCAA and Power Five were so effective in getting that running head start, controlling the language, controlling the narrative, having these kabuki theater hearings orchestrated by these powerful lobbying firms that nobody ever asked the question, what the hell are private nonprofit associations doing even asking for these things? Any single one of those three, protections and immunities standing alone, would have been laughable if any other industry came and asked for, for that kind of relief. But you had this very sophisticated campaign, and you have the NCAA and, and now the Power Five, more importantly, coming in with this sense that they can get whatever the hell they want to. And quite frankly, for 70 years, they did, because there wasn't any meaningful pushback to their regulatory model or their business model and their compensation limits. So, so the three committees that held hearings in 2020, and, and then there were a couple in 2021, were the Commerce Committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Why are we in those three committees? Well, Commerce has original jurisdiction, and that's the committee through which you would get federal preemption. The Judiciary Committee has jurisdiction over antitrust matters. And if you want to get an antitrust exemption, you have to get the blessing of judiciary. And then why health, education, labor, and pensions? Because they have jurisdiction over labor issues. And if you want to get a provision that says athletes can't be employees, you have to get the blessing of the HELP Committee. And in 2020, You had Roger Wicker, chair of commerce, a Republican from Mississippi. You had Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, chair of judiciary. The chair of the HELP Committee was Tennessee Republican Lamar Alexander, who has since retired from the Senate. And all three of those senators were openly hostile to name, image, and likeness rights, in my judgment, when you pay real close attention to these hearings. When you look at the actual bills that started to pop up in the summer of 2020, they offered virtually nothing in terms of name, image, and likeness compensation benefits, but they all had these three protections and immunities. I call them the death provisions. So the other thing that's important to understand is that in these hearings in 2020, they weren't discussing or debating a particular piece of legislation. They were simply framing the issues. And that hasn't changed through the hearings in 2021. And that's the case with this hearing next week in in the House. They're not considering a piece of legislation. They're trying to get buy-in. And then once they get that, they're going to use one of the 
pieces of proposed legislation that has come up in this debate. And the first proposed legislation came in June of 2020 through Florida Republican Marco Rubio, and it had virtually nothing on nil, and it had the three death provisions, and that bill was only four or five pages long. I mean, it was really not well disguised, and that got some pushback. And then you started to see the other Republican bills being a little more deliberate about hiding those three death provisions around some other issues that made it look like they were offering something of value to the athletes. But when you really break down these bills and read the fine print, they were an illusion as well. So after the Rubio bill, there was an NCAA bill that was put on the table and it was very stealthy. It really didn't make it into the public discussion. That was in connection with a hearing in judiciary in July. And then in September of 2020, just after the last hearing of 2020 in the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, you had Anthony Gonzalez, the House member from Ohio, the Republican, putting out the Level Playing Field Act, and it had the three death provisions. Then in December, you had Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, putting out a bill that he re-released just last September, and it has the three death provisions. It's a horrible bill. It may be the worst of all of these bills, that and the Jerry Moran bill, which came out in February of 2021. Those bills are very similar structurally in terms of the bottom line, and that is that the athletes' rights movement is over through these three protections and immunities. And then in May of 2021, you had uh, Steve Shabbat on the House side, Republican from Ohio, putting out a bill that was very much like the Moran bill. It was kind of a House companion to that. And the other thing that's important to understand about the range of proposed legislation that came out of the Power Fives and NCAA's engagement with Congress in 2019 is that the Athletes' Bill of Rights end of the legislative landscape and the Murphy-Sanders bill that would give athletes employee status under the NLRA. Those were in response to the Power Five and NCAA's engagement with Congress. That athlete's bill of rights really wasn't conceptualized until the July 22nd hearing in the Judiciary Committee in 2020 that Lindsey Graham chaired. And Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker, who were co-sponsors of the Athletes' Bill of Rights that was about as athlete-friendly as any bill on the table is, and quite frankly, there's some issues with that as well. But they were saying, wait a minute, you know, you're talking about name, image, and likeness only. And that was one of the key themes that came out of this secret meeting in December of 2019. Let's keep it narrow, focused on nil. We don't want to deal with these other issues. Get what you need, get in, get out, and move on. And so you had this sense that something needed to happen quickly. It needed to be narrow, and we don't want to talk about this other stuff. So Blumenthal and Booker say, wait a minute, what about health and safety? What about the athlete voice, because athletes have had zero meaningful representation in any of these discussions, particularly the revenue-producing athletes in the Power Five. And then they said, what about revenue sharing? And so Graham, at that hearing, he's just getting annoyed, and he says, well, just get me something, get me something. That was the genesis for the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And then later we had the Murphy-Sanders Bill. But those pieces of legislation were responsive, which means, of course, that they were proposed in the context of a narrative that had already been set and cemented in by the Power Five and the NCAA through their powerful lobbyists. And even when the Democrats took control of the Senate after the Georgia special elections in January of 2021, they did not deviate from that basic framing. And that's one of the biggest problems about this whole discussion about congressional engagement. And we really haven't just taken 
all of those bills off the table and gone back and tested the original assumptions, the premises underlying what the NCAA and Power Five were asking for. And we're talking about preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees as if those were reasonable asks. And that has been normalized through a compliant sports media. This is a breathtaking power play. And in addition to these powerful lobbyists, all of these powerful conferences and the NCAA have very powerful public relations firms. NCAA in 2015 started doing business with a company called Bully Pulpit Interactive Inc., one of the most influential public relations firms, Spin Doctors in Washington, D.C., and since 2015, they've paid Bully Pulpit at least $40 million to help coordinate the message and get it out into the stream of consciousness. Bully Pulpit pops up again in January of 2022 when the Transformation Committee is beginning its work. And one of the very first things they did before they talked about a single substantive issue was to get Bully Pulpit to come in and do a comprehensive communications plan to control the message. This is about controlling the message and the narrative. And the Power Five and NCAA have been brilliant at that. And what has resulted from the Democrats taking control of the Senate in 2021, it was really technical control because there was an evenly divided Senate. And because the Democrats had the White House, they had technical control. They were operating under a power sharing agreement that virtually guaranteed gridlock on any issue that ran through a partisan lens. And that was true for the athletes' rights issues. They were partisan. And I'm not trying to make it a partisan issue. The NCAA made it a partisan issue and they went to Congress. Congress didn't come to them. Another fact that gets conveniently ignored in discussions about the future of college sports and congressional engagement. And then there were two more hearings in the Senate in 2021, after the summer of 2021, when the NCAA was getting its butt kicked. They lost the Austin case and the Power Five. Power, the Power Five were defendants in Austin. And it's important to point out that the NCAA and the Power Five appealed that case into the Ninth Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court. The athletes didn't appeal that case. And the only reason that the Power Five and NCAA wanted this to go up to the U.S. Supreme Court is that they were asking for absolute judicially created antitrust immunity, the same thing they were asking from Congress, and they thought they had a free shot. And the way the, the case was framed on appeal, there really wasn't much risk to the NCAA and Power Five because the ultimate question of whether athletes could be in a economic and labor market where they could compete for the value of the athlete's services wasn't even on the table because the case had been whittled down to these education benefits. So they got a free shot and they got their ass kicked <laughs> on a very limited ruling. And then, of course, you had their failure through these hearings in June of 2021 in the Senate Commerce to try to get last-minute preemption before the state laws on nil started to go into effect on July 1st of 2021. And then you had the nil dump on June 30th through the interim policy. And a lot of people forget that that interim policy is interim until one of two things happen. One, the NCAA changes its own rules on name, image, and likeness, which it had been promising all along. That was the other track of the misdirection campaign. They were saying, hey, we're going to change our own rules. And they did this through the federal and state legislation working group. And that was a mirage. They never intended to change their rules. They thought they were going to get federal protections and immunities that would allow them to do nothing on nil. So that initial condition of the interim policy that it's an interim until we change our own rules was ridiculous. The second condition in the interim policy was until we get a bailout from Congress. And that's where this issue has been really since the summer of 2021. And the NCAA has been 
looking for a way to re-engage. Then we had this hearing in September of 2021 in the House that I'm going to talk a little bit more specifically about here. But that was really a courtesy to Anthony Gonzalez, who had literally been begging for a hearing in the House since he first proposed his uh, Level Playing Field Act in September of 2020. He then re-released it, but he really pressed the gas on that. And that hearing really, I think, was designed to appease him. And everybody at the hearing talked about what a great job he did and all this stuff. But that hearing is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, about the NCAA and Power Five framing the debate in Congress, because that hearing, when you look at the witness list that I'm going to go through here, it looked more like an NCAA Power Five witness list than an athlete witness list. And the Democrats controlled the House. They controlled that committee at the time. That's different today. The House has flipped. So I want to talk real quick now about the lobbying firepower that the Power Five and the NCAA and Notre Dame have in this fight. So I have a list of the top-ranked lobbying firms. This is from 2022. It's a Politico article, but actually its source, its original source, is Open Secrets, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit in Washington, D.C., dedicated to trying to inject some transparency into the Byzantine world of big-time influence peddling through lobbying. And I'm just going to go through the firms that are on this list and then a few more that didn't make the list, but were, were pretty close behind. And the number one ranked firm on that list is Brownstein Hyatt. They work for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And in a separate episode, I'm going to talk about the nature of that particular lobbying campaign because there's some really disturbing features of it. The number two lobbying firm, Aiken Gump, both of these firms are law firms that have a, a lobbying component. They have a division of the firm that works as lobbyists in, in Washington, D.C. Aiken Gump is the registered lobbyist for the Southeastern Conference, the SEC. The number six ranked lobbying firm, Cornerstone Government Affairs, is the lobbyist of record for the University of Notre Dame. The number 14 ranked firm, Cassidy & Associates, works for the PAC-12. A subject matter works for, that's number 16. A number 16 is subject matter, formerly known as Elmendorf Ryan. They work for all five Power Five conferences. A couple of big firms didn't make this top 20 list, but they're heavy hitters. DLA Piper works for the ACC, and Kit Bond Strategies works for the Big Ten. There's also another important firm. It's a boutique firm that works for all Power Five conferences, and that is Marshall and Pop. And the reason that's such an important lobbying firm is that its principal, Hazen Marshall, was the key aide for Republican Senator from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell. Pretty nice to have Mitch on the team when you need him. And Monica Pop, Marshall's partner, she was a key aide to Republican Senator John Cornyn from Texas. These are very powerful people. And it's important to understand that both subject matter and Marshall and Pop work for all five Power Five conferences. So there is coordination here. And all of these firms, the NCAA, Notre Dame, Power Five, all those firms are communicating and working together. And even though there has been some backstabbing among the Power Five, and I think that hurts their campaign. I mean, they need to present a coordinated front. And I think that's a problem from an optics standpoint when 
they're, they're pouching schools from other conferences. But when it comes to their legislative campaign, what they want from Congress, what they want in federal courts, they have been reading from the same page. And they all land with the three death provisions, preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees. And before I get to this op-ed, there's one last point I want to make on the nature of the Power Five's engagement with Congress. There are a lot of people in the commentary, including a lot of people on the athletes' rights side, who believe that there's not a snowball's chance in hell that the NCAA and Power Five are going to get protective federal legislation. They base that belief on what's happened in a essentially gridlocked Senate really since the elections in 2020. I think that is a mistake. And I think that when you look honestly at, at how this uh, campaign is being pitched now, you really have to understand the power uh, at the political level of the football interest through Power Five states and Power Five senators and representatives. And when you look at the range of proposals that have been introduced, I think a lot of people are misled into believing that because we have some bills on the athlete's right side, which as I noted earlier, were in response to the initial framing of these issues by the NCAA and Power Five, they think that those bills are an equal and opposite counterweight to these Republican bills that would end the athletes' rights movement. I don't see it that way at all. When you look at the interests that these various senators represent, so on the athletes' rights side with, say, the Athletes' Bill of Rights and then the Murphy-Sanders Bill, let's look at who the power players are there. And you have some very impressive senators who have done phenomenal work on behalf of athletes' rights, but they come from really insignificant interests on this issue. This is a Power Five issue, and the Power Five have framed their lobbying campaign around their interests and no one else's. So when you look, for example, at the Athletes' Bill of Rights and the senators who sponsored it and are promoting it, you've got, for example, Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, Democrat from Connecticut. Connecticut doesn't have a Power Five school. It's not a power player on issues relating to big-time, powerful football interests. Cory Booker from New Jersey, Democrat from New Jersey, and he's been great on the rhetorical side, but quite frankly, he's a caution flag. He's a yellow flag in my judgment because he just wants to be the bipartisan senator. And that's another element of this I'm going to talk a little bit more about when I talk about the quotes from the opening montage. But Booker's from New Jersey, and the only Power Five product is Rutgers. That's really not a power player. And I would say among all the Power Five football interests, Rutgers is at the, the bottom of the food chain. And then also on the Athletes' Bill of Rights, you had Brian Schatz, a Democrat from Hawaii, who I think has asked the most intelligent questions in some of these hearings. He, I think he understands the nature of this power play and how big it is. And he, he has really, I think, been a, an effective senator in the conduct of these hearings, which again are you know, largely kabuki theater, but he doesn't represent a power five interest. Hawaii doesn't have a power five school. And then you have uh, Democrat Senator Chris Murphy, also from Connecticut. And Connecticut, again, doesn't have a power five school in it, not a power player on this issue. Then you have Bernie Sanders, who co-sponsored that athlete as employee bill. He's from Vermont. Vermont couldn't be more irrelevant in this discussion than a state can be. He's not a power player. Then on the House side, you have Laurie Trahan, who has been very vocal and uh, appears to be an athlete's rights 
advocate, but she's from Massachusetts and Boston College is the only Power Five product there, not a power player in the Power Five landscape. She's also cozied up to Charlie Baker. That makes me nervous because Baker is just Mark Emmert 2.0. You're getting the same crap from him that we got from Emmert for 11 years. That's what he's paid to do. You know, the NCAA wasn't going to hire him if he was going to go off script. And then I also think that uh, Trahan is kind of a caution flag when it comes to gender equity issues. And that's been a powerful political tool for the NCAA and Power Five, both at the federal level and also at the state level. They beat back the California revenue sharing bill because they made all these skies falling. If we pay the athletes who actually provide the value in the product, then it's going to be the end of women's sports and non-revenue sports, all that stuff. I have heard a little bit of that in some of Trahan's comments. I'll be paying very close attention to how she positions herself on these issues. But you know, you compare that to the senators from the state of Florida, the state of Alabama, the state of Mississippi, the state of Texas, the state of Kentucky, the state of South Carolina, the state of Kansas, but even in Georgia that has two Democrat senators, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, you think they're going to uh, be all rah-rah on athletes' rights if it means that it goes against the interests of Georgia football? You know, they're politicians. They're going to do what they have to do to survive. So I, I think when you look at it from a power-based lens and a power five lens, the way that these decisions are going to be made, I think really favors momentum towards protective federal legislation of some sort. It may start small with just preemption only. And then that opening montage, you, you heard all the propaganda. That was all from one hearing, by the way. One hearing, that September 2021st hearing in the House that I'm going to compare to what's going to happen next week. All of those quotes on uniformity and patchwork and national standard all came from the same hearing. And that just tells you how well coordinated the message is. And there has been substantial buy-in on that issue. Even some of the Democrats, Trahan has a bill that she's proposed, a name, image, and likeness only bill that offers preemption. And you have some people testifying ostensibly through an athlete's rights lens at these hearings who seem to be okay with preemption. If they get their foot in the door, if the NCAA and Power Five can just get their foot in the door on preemption, right now. That's a massive win because I think there's a decent chance that in 2024, you could have a unified Republican go government. And I think they're biding time for that. A lot of these external pathways, the NLRB case that's pending right now, the Johnson suit, the House suit, all of those challenges to the NCAA's regulatory authority, they're not going to be finalized until well into 2024 through the next election cycle. So you could have a Republican-controlled federal government, and if that happens, it's game, set, match. And we're having a much different discussion. We're having this discussion in the context of a Democrat-controlled Senate and White House. And there's still a good chance, I think, that the Republicans may get something on preemption because of the extent of the buy-in. In that way, the NCAA Power Five lobbying campaign has been very effective on that issue. And Congress has been very reticent to get involved in the substantive regulation of college sports. They've had a hands-off approach. But the NCAA and Power Five have been working them through the most powerful lobbyists in the history of America since 2019. And they have built substantial support for that single issue. And if they get their foot in the door on name, image, and likeness preemption, then you've got a camel's nose problem. You know, the camel gets his nose into the tent, and before you know it, the, the whole camel's in the tent, taking up all the space. So I think that's a, a real risk here. 
So now I want to turn to this op-ed and as I go through the, the themes here of the substance, I'm going to talk about some other issues that are raised by the timing of this op-ed. And I want to talk first about how this op-ed is structured because the structure of this argument is virtually identical to the way that the Powell Five and the NCAA have structured their arguments in Congress. And the way that these Republican-sponsored bills have been characterized in the political process uh, through NCAA and Power 5 public relations campaigns, and importantly, in a compliant sports and mainstream media. And so here is the template, and it has five basic components. The first is you exaggerate and mythologize the importance of college sports. And that is done through the title. College sports are a treasure. I'm going to come back to that. Second, you scare the hell out of people with the sky is falling tactics and loaded rhetoric that gets people scared that this jewel, this treasure of college sports is in existential peril. Third, you lie about the threats. You exaggerate them, you mischaracterize them, and you present them in a way that make it appear as if there are evil forces in place right now that are working to kill this national treasure, this cultural icon. Then uh, fourth, you go to your ace in the hole immunity shields. And the one that's been working in Congress so far, both at the federal level and the state level, and that's been working very well at a public relations level, is gender equity. Gender equity is the ultimate immunity shield and trump card because when you make the argument that if we treat the laborers in Power 5 football, men's basketball as free Americans, then we are stealing money and equity from female athletes and also Olympic sport athletes, non-revenue athletes. So they have this zero-sum financial model and this zero-sum equity world where we have a fixed amount of money and equity and anything we do in those two regards for profit athletes is stealing money and equity from female athletes. And that gender equity argument has been so weaponized in our public and political discourse and legislative decision-making that when you put that card on the table, people jump under the nearest desks, particularly politicians. And then the last piece is the ask. So how are we going to solve this problem? And the ultimate solution, as I've discussed, is to give the NCAA and the Power Five extraordinary federal protections and authorities and immunities that would allow them to essentially end the threat from the profit athletes. As I'm going to discuss in this op-ed, they're very, very clever and I think misleading in how they weave those into the narrative. Because in this op-ed, they don't use the word preemption. They don't use the word antitrust immunity. They don't use the phrase, athletes can't be employees. They couch it in terms of these broad principles that would give the NCAA the authority to protect this jewel, this national treasure. And the Power Five and the NCAA don't want anybody looking behind their broad general characterizations that are rooted in the mythology. So let's start with, with how they, they set up 
the themes. That very first theme that we have this cultural icon that we have to protect is the first sentence of the title. College sports are a treasure. And that's repeated in a couple of different ways throughout the article. And I'll just point out that that is verbatim from the language that we heard from Charlie Baker and Linda Livingstone and Mark Emmert during the State of the Association speech at the NCAA convention on January 12th of 2023. And of course, we heard the same thing in December when the NCAA did an infomercial press conference with Charlie Baker when they announced that he was going to be the new NCAA president. And he went on and on. It was about this jewel, this thing that we have that has such a, an important cultural meaning in America. And we can't do anything that could threaten this national jewel. The same thing. Linda Livingstone went through that during this State of the Association speech. And she got two-thirds of the airtime there. Why? Because she's a woman. She's chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, the new Board of Governors. And she has been a reliable foot soldier for the NCAA. And she was one of the key witnesses in this September 2021 hearing in the House, the same committee, essentially. And it's going to be conducting this hearing next week. So then what do we do? We provide temporal context. And the reason that this is happening right now, that we had this op-ed and that we're having this hearing next week, by the admission of the author of this op-ed and then Gus Bilirakis in the press release about this hearing next week, they want to capitalize on the focus that Americans have on March Madness. But what they really want is to make these arguments while, while Americans are in love with a college sports product. And Americans love the NCAA men's basketball tournament, March Madness, as much as any other sporting product in the history of sport in America. So we're all lovey-dovey. We've been assaulted now. We're going into the fourth week of this month-long national holiday devoted to men's basketball, largely. Women's basketball is still off the radar screen. That's another discussion. But we have people in this kind of trance that we fall into every March and early April. And we're just being assaulted with the feel-good themes. And I've watched some of the tournament. I look at uh, the tournament through a, a different lens than a lot of people. But I've really been focused on the propaganda. And it is so powerful and it is so seductive that Americans are just drawn into it. So while they have you where they want you through March Madness, they want to capitalize on that kind of national zeitgeist to ask for things that will protect this national treasure. And I want to press rewind to Mark Emmert's Final Four press conference in 2022. That was a stump speech for congressional intervention. I did an episode, I can't remember the number of it, but it was titled Mark Emmert Master Dissembler. And I did a montage from that press conference. It was maybe a 40-minute press conference. And all the references to Congress and the fact that we need help from Congress. And that montage went on for like two and a half minutes. And I'm not sure I got all of them. It was a stump speech for congressional intervention. The theme at, at that press conference was, this tournament is an American treasure. And it is at risk. And we have to have congressional engagement. They pulled that play from the playbook for this op-ed and for this hearing next week. So this op-ed, after talking about the importance of the NCAA basketball tournament, says, beyond the excitement of that tournament, college athletics is in crisis. We're in crisis, okay? Put on your crisis hat. Go into the crisis bomb shelter, the college sports bomb shelter. And then they launch into the rhetorical 
tactics. And they say it faces threats on a number of fronts. The growing patchwork of contradictory and confusing state laws, the crippling lawsuits, the dubious name, image, and likeness deals, the misguided attempts to classify student athletes as employees. This is a short paragraph, but on the back side of it, you're huddled in the corner just waiting for somebody to save you. Then they get into the support for why we should feel scared. And they try to make the argument that, look, everybody thinks this is about money, but no, it's really not about money. And then they go into trying to describe the specific threats. And it's in this discussion where they're just misleading as hell. And you have to believe, given the sophistication of the authors of this op-ed, the president of the University of Notre Dame and Jack Swarbrick, who has uh, really been a primary spokesperson and people are very deferential to him. He's viewed as the an icon among athletics directors, the way that Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, is viewed as the new titan of Power Five conference commissioners. But they say this, the per perception has grown in recent years that student athletes whose talent and hard work create so much revenue for schools and even coaches get nothing in return. And, and that is a setup for the million dollar degree, which comes later. Look at everything. They get a free education and they get the million dollar degree. And I think one of the reasons that Notre Dame was selected to be the voice of this op-ed that sets the stage for this hearing next week is that among the Power Five schools, they've done it about as well as you can academically. And they bring in good kids and they try to treat them like real students and they graduate at higher rates than most other Power Five schools. So they are about as good as it gets when it comes to the educational side. You, you have some other schools that are doing it the right way within all the limitations of the obvious professionalized, commercialized business model, but they're right there at, at the top of the list. So I think that gives them some credibility there. But they talk about that and they say, echoing public opinion, courts have struck down longstanding NCAA regulations that barred student athletes from profiting from their name, image, and likeness. That has resulted in further antitrust suits against the NCAA and athletic conferences. That is misleading, profoundly misleading. The only case that they could be referring to here is the O'Bannon case that name, image, and likeness case. It's the only name, image, and likeness case in which a federal court has issued an opinion on the name, image, and likeness compensation limits. And suggesting that those rules were struck down is simply not true. And in fact, on the backside of O'Bannon, as I explained earlier, the NCAA and Power Five had their regulatory authority affirmed, not struck down, because all the court said in O'Bannon and this may have been the most important consequence of O'Bannon, is that the NCAA is subject and the Power Five are subject to our federal free competition laws. You don't get judicially created antitrust immunity because of some offhand language from a case 40 years ago. And the decision in O'Bannon was extraordinarily deferential to the amateurism-based compensation limits at issue. And on the backside of O'Bannon, the NCAA had essentially an immunity, a qualified judicial immunity from any challenge to amateurism-based compensation limits in nil or any other context that would have resulted in the open and free market competition for the value of the athlete's services. So this whole characterization is simply misleading.
And then Jenkins and Swartberg go to another tactic, which I just get a kick out of because this has been floating around since 2019. And that is, we really support name, image, and likeness compensation, but only within guardrails that make it almost impossible. Here is what they say. We've been vocal in our conviction that student athletes should be allowed to capture the value of the use of their name, image, and likeness. In other words, profit from their celebrity for one simple reason. Other students are allowed to. And then they say, if a college student is a talented artist or musician, no one begrudges him the chance to make money from his skills. And athletes should, as far as possible, have the opportunity other students enjoy. As far as possible. Yeah, we want to treat these athletes as uh, regular students, but only to the extent the athlete's nil activity aligns with our compensation limits and our draconian rules that no other college student is subject to. Then Jenkins and Swarbrick transition into the immunity shield, the trump card, gender equity. And they say, at Notre Dame, revenue from football, men's basketball goes to support 24 other varsity sports, including most important women's sports most of which did not exist on college campuses before 1972. So Notre Dame is jumping on the gender equity train when the NCAA and the Power Five have shown outright hostility to gender equity interests since 1972. And in the phase-in period for Title IX from 72 to 78, they openly tried to uh, exempt college football from Title IX requirements. And then it is straight into the fictitious zero-sum world that they want stakeholders to believe in. And that is that we have a zero-sum financial market in college sports and a zero-sum equity market. And if we do anything for the profit athletes, then we're stealing money and equity from female athletes. And the other thing that's important about that framing is that it is an articulation of Miles Brand's collegiate model as a financial framework. And they're acknowledging here, and this is so important, that it is okay to steal revenue from football and men's basketball so long as it goes to support downstream beneficiaries in sports that can't pay for themselves. And they don't want to talk about who the people are in that transaction because disproportionately, the Power 5 football and men's basketball teams are African-American and disproportionately, the 24 other varsity sports they talk about, including women's sports, are overwhelmingly white and comparatively well-off. It's a terrible model, and it's a racialized model, but they are using that model. And that is the very same theme that came up in this September 2021 hearing in the House. That was the, the main argument that we have to preserve this regressive transfer of wealth or else the system is going to collapse. And there are all kinds of, of problems with that chief of which is that that mythology exists only within a small group of Power 5 schools that can have a self-sustaining athletics budget. And what they're saying basically is if we can't pay for women's sports from revenue from football and men's basketball, then they're going to disappear. And that is a tacit acknowledgement, in my judgment, that they don't give a damn about Title IX and gender equity because they're saying if we can't steal revenue from football and men's basketball players, then we're not going to cough it up to fund these sports. And this is at one of the wealthiest schools on the planet with a $18 billion endowment. It was precisely that argument that Stanford University made in 2020 when they cut, I think, 11 non-revenue sports. And they said, well, gosh, we just can't come up with that penny. And we've looked high and low, but only within the athletics department. Stanford's one of the richest schools in the world, not just the United States. 
And after threats of litigation, all of a sudden they found that penny. It's a terrible argument. And then they close it out with the ask. And they do that in one sentence, presented as a paragraph, and 33 words. I'm going to read this to you. Congress, too, must act to resolve conflicting state regulations, clarify that our athletes are students, not employees, and give the NCAA the ability to enact and enforce rules for fair recruiting and compensation. And when you read that, it sounds so reasonable. It seems, well, of course, that seems fair. Why wouldn't we do that? Because buried in that very general language are the three death provisions that end the athletes' rights movement. But they don't use the phrases. They don't talk about it in terms of what they're really asking for from Congress. And you would read right through that paragraph and not understand the importance of it. And that's exactly what they intended by the way that this one sentence paragraph was constructed. So when they say, must act to resolve conflicting state regulations, that means federal preemption of state laws. Second, clarify that our athletes are students, not employees. That means they want a provision from Congress that says that as a matter of federal law, athletes can't be employees. And that eliminates the NLRB pathway to collective bargaining. It ends the FLSA pathway to uh, payment through an hourly wage. It could conceivably eliminate workers' compensation benefits. But importantly, it really is also a tool to suppress the athlete voice because if you don't have protectable rights under the NLRA as laborers, then your uh, right to free association, free expression, freedom of contract, choosing your own representative, those are chilled or, or taken away altogether as a, a no employee provision would. And then the last thing, and, and this is very cleverly disguised, give the NCAA the ability to enact and enforce rules for fair recruiting and compensation. What that means is that the NCAA needs to have absolute, unchallengeable regulatory authority to impose its compensation limits. What does that mean? Antitrust immunity. It means saying the NCAA is above the law. They don't have to comply with our nation's free competition laws. It's precisely what they asked for in Austin. It's precisely what they're seeking now. And then they close it out with a return to the theme that they opened with and was part of the title. And they say this, college athletics is a treasured national institution, professionalized teams treating athletes more as employees than as students and weakening the vital connection with the educational mission of their colleges will rob college athletics of its special character. That's the Charlie Baker argument. That's the, the NCAA national office argument. That is the lobbying argument. And it is powerful. And I think a lot of consumers and stakeholders respond to it. So now I want to talk about these hearings in the House, the one from September of uh, 2021 and the one that's going to occur next week. And I'm going to do a little compare and contrast. And I want to just say that on this September 2021 hearing, I did a series of episodes on it because I thought it was so important, the way that the witness list was structured, the themes that evolved, and really what it says about the lobbying campaign, the congressional engagement and the value system that the Power Five and NCAA are selling. So it was episode 65 to 68. Episode 65, the NCAA is back in Congress. That was in October of 2021. All, all these episodes were October of 2021. Episode 66, same script, new cast. The NCAA recycles its worst nil arguments in the House of Representatives. 67, Dr. Livingstone's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad congressional testimony because Linda Livingstone, now the chair of the NCAA Board of Governors, testified ostensibly in her capacity 
as Baylor University president. And I really break that testimony down. And then 68, episode 68, titled The Federal Nil Police. I talk about the enforcement piece. I'm not going to talk a lot about that right now, but that's a really important piece. Every, they're talking about national standard and we need the federal government to get involved, but they haven't articulated an intelligent enforcement mechanism. They just want the authority to limit athletes' rights. Beyond that, how it's enforced, I think, is, is secondary to them. But there's some really big problems with trying to do that at the national level. And I guess I'll throw in another episode here on Charlie Baker's rollout, the, the themes that were uh, echoed in this New York Times op-ed, you know, Congress, 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 the, the, the jewel of college sports. I did episode 141 titled Employee Status, Charlie Baker and Congress, and that was uh, in December of 2022. And I think that those episodes are important because you really do have to get down to a granular level to understand exactly what is happening in Congress. But I want to talk a little bit about this September 2021 hearing. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I think that in some ways this was really a courtesy to Anthony Gonzalez because he had worked so hard and he just wanted his bill to get its day in Congress. And he got that. But I think that this hearing nonetheless is a really good insight into the playbook of this particular committee. And importantly, Gus Bilirakis, who was then the ranking member of that subcommittee because the Democrats controlled the House. Jan Schakowsky was the chair of that subcommittee, a Democrat, and she just doesn't understand these issues. That's another thing about that hearing, and I think we're going to see the same thing next week. Some of these Democrats simply don't really understand the issues. Trahan probably has the, the best level of understanding, but I'm going to be paying very, very close attention to, to what she says. And I, I know when I explain this September 2021 hearing, you're going to see the, the Republicans playbook. And I guess I should also say as part of the setup that Andy Wittry, the sports journalist who I mentioned earlier, who got those documents on the secret meeting in 2019, he came up with another round of documents through public records request just in February, just last month, that are really, really important. And those two got virtually no press coverage. And it gives an insight into how behind the scenes the Power Five are thinking about their re-engagement with Congress at a tactical level and also at a rhetorical level. And uh, those documents that, uh, that Andy got included a memo from the ACC's outside attorney, a guy named John Barrett, who used to work with the Big Ten and Jim Delaney. He was there for 13 years. Delaney retires. Warren takes over. Barrett comes back home. He's from North Carolina. Delaney's from North Carolina. They have those ties, those UNC ties. And Barrett wrote a privileged and confidential memo describing the Power Five strategy. And this memo was not intended for public consumption, and it is a bombshell. But again, the mainstream media hasn't touched it. And what that uh, memo disclosed was that the, the new decision makers, in 2019, it was university presidents and Power Five Conference commissioners. That was it. In 2022, so this memo is dated December 13th, 2022, near, nearly three years to the day after that uh, 2019 memo. But it shows that the Power Five conferences have four member working groups at each conference, total of 20 people. And you have the conference commissioner, you have a, a conference staff member responsible for governance, you have the lawyers, number three, and the lobbyists, number four. So 10 of the 20 people who are 
behind the scenes in star chamber-like decision-making, determining the future of college sports and the legislative campaign are lawyers and lobbyists. And that goes to my point from the very beginning that these decisions about the future of college sports and how they're going to eliminate the athletes' rights movement aren't being made by a representative group of stakeholders sitting down at a table in open and free, transparent conversation and getting their issues on the table and coming up with a sensible, a consensual understanding of what the issues are and how to resolve them. These are power plays by some of the most powerful people in college sports and some of the most powerful lawyers and lobbyists, and they're going to get their way. This is a, a no-holds-barred, scorched-earth approach. And in the discussions of kind of what they wanted, they're back to the three death p provisions. They had three, quote-unquote, must-haves in their re-engagement with Congress. They wanted preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees. They had a couple of other non-consensus issues that are shiny objects that they may need to use to re-engage Congress. Because another part of this is that Bill Arikis is using name, image, and likeness. That's the cover for this hearing next week. But name, image, and likeness already exists. All, all the uh, sky is falling narratives that were built around the name, image, and likeness market back in 2019 have proven to be false because the market exists, the games go on, and we are in an historic bull market in terms of college sports revenues. You can't make with a straight face the argument that this null market is uh, killing college sports or that we're they're cutting sports, all, all that stuff. That Those are dead issues. I think that what Barrett's memo, I think, accurately recognizes is that there needs to be a new shiny object to go back in and ask for these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. So they talked about revenue sharing. They talked about health and safety. But there was no consensus on that, importantly, because that's not what they care about. They care about the three death provisions. And what was interesting about the way that they talked about their engagement, there were some other talking points that were really important. The first is that they want this campaign to run through the House of Representatives to begin with. Why? Because the Republicans now control the House. And, and this memo was drafted after the midterms and I think reflects the reality of the legislative landscape post-midterm. With the Democrats in control of the Senate, the Republicans in control of the House. That's why this hearing next week is being conducted in the House of Representatives. And it is a direct byproduct of the very thinking that came out of this secret, privileged, and confidential meeting and this memo that John Barrett wrote just a couple months ago. And then two other important things about that memo. One is that they said they wanted to model legislation now after the Roger Wicker Bill. And the Roger Wicker Bill is the death star for athletes. It is the worst of the worst. I mean, of all the least best options, that is the worst option. But that's where they want to land because it just takes down the athletes' rights movement. And then the last thing, this is the kind of thing that, that should have been on the front page of national media outlets. We have this op-ed from the New York Times for crying out loud, why the hell is the New York Times putting this garbage in their editorial page? And there's some interesting issues with the New York Times coverage, honestly, of college sports now. And, and there have been some troubling articles that, that have come from the New York Times. But the New York Times should be reaching out to Andy Wittry and should be reviewing the documents that he got. And that should be a front page story at the New York Times, at the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, name your outlet. And certainly Sports Illustrated, but that ain't going to happen. That's not going to happen because we have so many people in the sports media running in interference for the Power Five and NCAA interests. But at the very end of this memo, Barrett says that all communications about the issues raised in that privileged and confidential memo should be done by phone and run through Jim Phillips, the commissioner of the ACC. They are not to be put 
into a text or an email. They don't want a paper trail, either I think for purposes of potential uh, discovery and litigation or for, through public records requests. But what does that say? These people are representing higher education for crying out loud, but they don't want to put anything in writing that could show exactly what they're thinking, how they're making their decisions, and who the hell is making them. That alone should be a front page news story. But that's the way these people roll. And this hearing next week is a direct product of that way of thinking and the strategy outlined in that memo. So let me go through this witness list from uh, the September 30th, 2021 hearing. And again, remember, the Democrats controlled this committee, yet the witness list looks like a Republican witness list, which I, I think ties back again into the power of framing the, the issues in Congress on the front end and the NCAA Power 5's lobbyists. They accomplished that goal. We're having this discussion around the values and within the framework that the Power 5 and NCAA wanted from the very beginning. So the witnesses, Mark Emmert, president of the NCAA, Linda Livingstone, who was then the president of Baylor. She also at the same time was on the NCAA Board of Governors, the old one, and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors. That did not come up. When you watch that hearing on C-SPAN and you see Livingstone, it's Linda Livingstone, president of Baylor University, and she's sitting right next to Mark Emmer, and he basically reports to her you know, in her capacity as a member of the Board of Governors. It was just breathtaking, really, that, that nobody talked about that. Well, I did, at least. Let's see. Then we had a Division II conference commissioner, Jackie McWilliams, African-American woman. What the hell is a Division II conference commissioner doing at that witness table? They have absolutely nothing to do with the true interest that drove that hearing, and that was Power 5 football and men's basketball. But they wanted to create the Big Ten impression, to conflate the interests of what they, and to hide what they were really trying to do that was targeted to the Power Five athletes in football and men's basketball. But they wanted to get these stakeholders across the NCAA landscape in uh, different sports and different divisions. And it it was a farce. It was an absolute farce. The only relevance that Division II interests have to the NCAA is the welfare check they get from the March Madness money and the block grant that they get from March Madness money. And this hearing didn't have a damn thing to do about college basketball. It was about Power Five football and protecting football interest. Then we had an athlete, a student athlete, Kemi March, who was at Washington State University. And the reason I think she was chosen is that Kathy Rogers, who is a Republican on that committee, and chairs the larger Energy and Commerce Committee. She's from Washington, so I think she selected someone from her home state. But Ms. March was a golfer at Washington State, and and she's African-American. She was portrayed as the victim. She was put there as the gender equity victim and seemed very nice, and it sounds like she takes her role as a student seriously, and she had some outside interests she wanted to pursue through NIL. They portrayed her not just as a name, image, and likeness victim because we didn't have a national uniform standard that would allow her to do what she wanted to do, but also as a victim of the equity issues. And that if we take money and give it to football and men's basketball players, we're stealing money from athletes just like her. And what's interesting about the face they put on through Ms. March is that she's really an outlier as an African-American female golfer. And Based on my research in the NCAA database, I concluded that she was the only African-American golfer in the Pac-12 conference 
at the time. But she's the face in this congressional hearing of the Olympic sport athlete interest. There was not, as always, as usual, a single revenue-producing athlete. In the seven hearings that occurred in the Senate and the House in 2020 and 2021, not a single revenue-producing athlete in Power 5 football or men's basketball testified. That's a really stunning omission. But what was interesting about Ms. March's testimony is that she made the case that she was a victim in part as a woman of color. And when she invoked the race issue, I thought it was really interesting because how can you talk about race in that context with her being a victim if, if money's taken away from her and given to football, men's basketball players, but not talk about the role of the African-American athletes in those two sports. And then, of course, we had Ramogi Huma. He was the lone athlete representative, and he testified in a lot of these hearings, and he was like the only kind of athlete rights conduit. And he was, I think, pretty good as an advocate. But I think having him as the sole representative of the athlete voice for the revenue-producing athletes was less than ideal. And I want to make a, a couple of points about the themes that were raised. This hearing was built around the collegiate model, Miles Brand's collegiate model, this regressive transfer of wealth. And the way that Livingstone presented her testimony, the way that Emmert presented his testimony was built around that. And then the questions from the Republicans on that committee all went to that point. And I'm just going to identify a couple of the people on the Republican side who were very vocal on that point. And th that these are the people you're going to hear from next week. So if I'm going to be testifying on the athlete's right side, I would be doing my scouting report and I'd be looking very carefully at what uh, three people had to say, the people who really acted as if they had a dog in this race. One was Bill Arrakis. He uh, is from Florida, right? Uh, obviously, uh, big skin in the game, SEC skin in the game. And he was all over the collegiate model and the fact that we can't do anything to deal with the profit athlete issues because then college sports will come to a fatal collapse as we know it. Then you had a guy named Jeff Duncan, a Republican from South Carolina, and he was right there with uh, all the rhetoric and the collegiate model talking points. And he was he and Bill Arrakis are just out of central casting. Then we had a Republican from Indiana, Russ Fulcher, and he was all on board with the NCAA Power Five talking points. And then I guess I'll mention a fourth guy, Kelly Armstrong, Republican from North Dakota, not a power player because he's not in a Power Five state. All four of these guys are white and th they were just carbon copies. But that's the kind of questioning that you're going to see. And it's going to be a, a, a about keeping it narrow, focus only on nil, national standard, national standard. We need federal preemption. And we don't want to deal with all these other issues because they just distract from the really important issue that's on the table now, the emergency issue, which is this out of control name, image, and likeness market. And then they are going to you know, make all the skies falling narratives. And we have to protect this jewel, this college sports jewel. And the other thing that they did at that hearing, which was very effective, and this really came through both Republican women and Democrat women, it was the gender equity immunity shield. And I think that had legs on both sides of the aisle. And that's why I think it's so important to really look at the power of that dynamic. And you're going to hear that next week. It's going to be gender equity, gender equity, gender equity. And it'll be interesting to me to see how the Democrats 
on that committee, including Lori Trahan, handle that issue. And they ran a lot of that gender equity propaganda through the two witnesses, African-American women who were portrayed as victims of the system, Jackie McWilliams, the Division II Conference Commissioner, and she was uh, all, all about gender equity. And then you had that theme coming from Ms. March. I think you can expect to see the same tactic next week. I don't know if they're going to have somebody from Division Two or Division Three to try to make those points to obscure the true purpose uh, of the regulation that they're seeking. And, and it'll also be interesting to see the extent to which they talk about issues other than preemption. I think you're going to hear preemption and, and, and no employee. It'll be interesting to see how they talk about the NCAA and Power Five's regulatory authority and whether they say the words antitrust immunity. So we'll be paying attention to that. I want to, to close out with the opening montage. Every single clip came from that hearing on September 30th of 2021. And I wanted to do the bullet format on all these buzzwords, because this is how the system works. And all of those quotes were the direct product of the efforts of the lobbyists and the public relations people. And all of these witnesses and all of the legislators were prepped on making sure that they just pumped those words into the hearing so that they became just beaten into the narrative and the way that people thought about the issues in that hearing. That is a typical propaganda technique. It's one that's very effective and it's uh, lobbyist influence peddling 101. This is how you get your message across. And it was very disciplined. That's the thing that's so important about the repetition there. It was very disciplined. It was very on point. And that has been a hallmark of the congressional campaign, the lobbying campaign, the public relations campaign, because it's, it's just so sophisticated. And these people are very disciplined. They stay within the talking points. They stay within the messaging. And I think it has had a, an impact that is really beneficial to the NCAA and the Power Five. But the first buzzword was bipartisan and bipartisanship. That is a theme that we have heard throughout the hearings, both in the Senate and the House. That is a dangerous dangerous theme because a lot of Democrats are buying into it and you have people who are going to make compromises in the sake of bipartisanship without looking at what the hell is in the bill that is the product of that bipartisanship. And I see that with Cory Booker. I see that with some of the women on the Commerce Committee, the Democrat women on the Commerce Committee. Maria Cantwell, who is the chair of the, of the Senate Commerce Committee right now, is a perfect example of that. She just wants a bipartisan solution. I don't think she understands the issues very well. Quite frankly, I don't think she gives a damn what's in the bill, but if it can be presented as a bipartisan bill and we quote unquote solve this issue, then she gets a star on the wall and then she moves on to the next thing. That's how these people think. They don't understand the issues and that these hearings have not had the purpose of educating the legislators on the issues in college sports and the business model's been really to keep them as ignorant as possible, buy into the mythology, the propaganda, and get just get beaten through repetition into buying into the NCAA Power 5 narrative. That's the way the game is played. And the NCAA and Power 5 have done it very, very well. That's not true on the athlete's right side. It's been disorganized. That's been a detriment, I think. But I will say this, I have disagreements with people in the athlete's rights movement, and I think that's healthy. You know, I don't see eye to eye with some of the advocates in, in the athlete's rights movement on, on, on an issue-specific basis. But I think at the values level, I agree with most of the people in this space. And I try to stay with that. And I think we need to talk about it in terms of values. But I think that's a much healthier debate than this robotic 
carefully orchestrated manicured campaign that's a product of influence peddling, not intelligent decision-making. So we go from bipartisanship to patchwork, the patchwork, patchwork, patchwork. I, I wanted to do a meme with like the patchwork dance. And this is, again, from just one hearing. If I did a patchwork montage from all seven of these hearings, it could go on for an hour. I mean, it's comical almost. Then to reinforce this preemption thing with national standard, a national standard, a national standard, and then uniformity, uniformity, uniformity. They're not saying the word preemption. They're not saying we're going to take states out of the regulatory field. We're not saying that we're going to deny these athletes the protection of state law. They're rolling it up in terms of all these fluffy things that, that are hard to disagree with. Well, gosh, we don't want a patchwork. Why would we want a patchwork? We want everything to be uniform. We want a national standard. We want everybody to be reading from the same page. We want everybody to agree. Who could disagree with that? That's the way that they've pitched it. And it's been effective. And then this last piece of the montage is from Bill Arrakis. And he went into this diatribe in his opening state where he was talking about a letter that he just received from the Student Athlete Advisory Committee presidents in the Atlantic Coast Conference schools. And I've talked about this SAC committee in, in prior episodes, and it's the only student representation organization that the NCAA recognizes and it is controlled by the NCAA. It exists at the pleasure of the NCAA. And I believe that there is self-selection in. I'm not criticizing everybody who serves on the SAC committees, but the farther you move up the chain from the institutions to the conference and certainly at the national level, those have been used as nothing more than a conduit to get NCAA propaganda in front of decision makers and present it as the, the true and only athlete voice, that it's the product of this representative system. So they use that tactic here in this hearing. And there was this letter that was written by 16 student athletes, and I'm using that the way the NCAA would, from the 15 ACC schools. And I'm including Notre Dame here. They're independent for football, but they're a member of the ACC for all other purposes. And I think there were two representatives from Syracuse. And so Bill O'Reikis launches into uh, a discussion. He holds this letter up and he says, don't listen to me. Listen to these athletes. And he says, to be clear, what I'm suggesting is not an approach uh, decided by the NCAA or the various conferences, but rather by collegiate athletes themselves. He says, I recently received a letter from 15 collegiate athletes from the ACC. There were actually 16 that emphasized this point. And I want to quote these students, if that's okay, Madam Chair. It's clear we need a federal baseline that levels the playing field, is what they say. The students also explain the most important factor in legislating on nil is to protect all college athletes, especially those outside the revenue-generating sports like football and basketball. I also want to point out that these students didn't ask for healthcare mandates or guaranteed scholarships or private rights of action. The risk of such factors will result in cutting the various sports programs we are working on to protect. After all, there's a difference between being a representative of a school and being a full-time employee of a school. I agree wholeheartedly with these students. Now, I, I want to make a few observations on that because this is so, so important. The United States Congress is taking a letter like this and presenting it as representative of what all athletes believe. And it's part of their consensus approach. 
and, and narrative. Everybody agrees. Nobody disagrees. Look at what the student athletes have to say. Listen to what they have to say. Don't listen to me for crying out loud. What do I know? Listen to these athletes. They know what they're talking about. And they are speaking for all athletes. And it's just breathtaking, really, that he employed this tactic. It is dishonest as hell. In fact, all the circumstances surrounding the drafting of this ACC letter and then how it made its way through all of the bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., to have a place of privilege in this hearing. And that letter was sent not just to Gus Bilirakis and Jan Schakowsky of, of the House uh, Energy and Commerce Committee, but to leaders in both chambers of Congress. How the hell does that happen? I'm just wondering if I could grab a group of Power Five football, men's basketball players, have them pen a letter, and then have it be held up in Congress as the sole authority on what athletes want. And I'm going to do a separate episode on the, the history of that letter, how it made its way into the political process, how it was used in the political process, and then how the mainstream media pumped it up and normalized it. And, and we're going to go back to our friend Ross Dellinger from Sports Illustrated. This thing just comes out of the blue. And Dellinger writes this puff piece holding up a particular student athlete from Notre Dame by the way, as the spokesperson behind the scenes, he was not a president of SAC. He wasn't a signatory to the letter, but he was the public mouthpiece. And he has a very interesting relationship and an undisclosed relationship to a very important decision maker in the ACC. And that inconvenient fact doesn't see the light of day. Thank you, Mr. Dellinger. I'm going to, again, I'm going to go through uh, all the circumstances surrounding this letter. And that raises some very interesting issues about the political process, the athlete voice, and the mainstream sports media. But from uh, Bill Arrakis's use of this letter, you have to believe that these athletes just woke up one day and say, oh, let's get together and let's write a joint letter to a subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee and share with them our thoughts on federal legislation. And when Bill O'Reikus says, I also want to point out that these students didn't ask for healthcare mandates or guaranteed scholarships or for private rights of action, that is an up yours to the interests of the revenue-producing athletes. And he is hiding behind these athletes, suggesting that they think that there shouldn't be healthcare mandates or guaranteed scholarships or private rights of action. He manipulated the athlete's letter. They didn't really talk about it on those terms. This guy's just bad news. I'm sorry, this Bilirakis guy is not the athlete's friend, and he is the new face of the NCAA Power Five initiative in the House of Representatives. So for, for purposes of this episode, I, I just want to emphasize that this was used as the, the athlete voice. I just want to talk quickly about the demographic and then make one more final point on that. But there were a total of 18 athletes who had some involvement in, in this letter. The 16 athletes who represented the universities, and, and there were two from Syracuse, that's why we have 16. Then there were two others who were listed as primary contacts. Of those 18 athletes, 15 were white. 83% of those athletes were white. Of those 18 athletes, 15 came from non 
revenue sports. Again, 83%. So this student voice, these athletes in the ACC, were overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly from non-revenue or Olympic sports who couldn't pay for themselves. And this tactic of using the true beneficiaries of this dysfunctional business model and portraying them as victims is a real problem. While we're talking about the race issue, let's just be clear about what's happening here in this congressional re-engagement and the three death provisions. What they're asking for here is the wholesale elimination or diminution of basic American rights targeted to a specific class of American citizens. This isn't uh, XYZ Corporation who manufactures widgets hiring the most powerful lobbying firms on the planet to engage Congress or a regulatory agency to try to get some uh, relief or tweak some Byzantine regulation. This is some of the most powerful institutions in American history, the Power Five and their member institutions and the NCAA and all of their member institutions going to Congress to say that a specific class of American citizens, namely profit athletes in Power 5 football and men's basketball, can't have the protection of state laws, can't have the protection of America's free competition laws, and can't have the benefits of basic labor protections because they can't be employees. I would ask all our spokespeople in higher education through the NCAA and Linda Livingstone and uh, Charlie Baker and all the academic types on these governing boards and all these meaningless committees at the NCAA, if they can name another class of American citizens in the post-civil rights era that have been targeted, specifically and surgically targeted, for the elimination or impairment of their basic rights as Americans. And those same stakeholders, like Charlie Baker, like Linda Livingstone, and all of their powerful lobbyists and public relations people, to get what they want from Congress. They're making a, a utilitarian argument. And they're saying, look, we need to maybe sacrifice the interests of the few to protect the interests of the many. That is really the rallying cry. That's what we heard in the rollout from Charlie Baker. That's what we heard at the State of the Association speech. We have this jewel and all these stakeholders, all these white stakeholders. I don't use the word white, but that's who they're talking to. There's a dog whistle component to this utilitarian advocacy. And they're saying, we need to protect the interests of these people. That came through loud and clear. In this September 30th, 2021 hearing, they, t they turned the equity issues and the civil rights issues and the social justice issues upside down and inside out and portrayed the beneficiaries of this upside down system as the victims. And they're doing it right now in real time. And we're going to see more of that next week. But I would ask these white stakeholders and spokespeople who are churning out this garbage, if they will say out loud who the few are. They don't want to have that conversation. They don't want us to look too closely at what they're really saying here. Because when you look honestly, the few are disproportionately African-American men in football and men's basketball, many of whom come from very challenging familial and financial circumstances. And they are being told, we have the right to use the power of the federal government to literally make you second-class citizens. And we don't want to hear what you have to say. Sit down and shut the hell up because you have it so good. And if the Power Five and the NCAA get one or more of these extraordinary 
federal protections and immunities to protect their regulatory authority and their money. There's no turning back. Once that happens, it's over. And all these discussions about athletes' rights will be moot. And I think that would be a tragedy in the United States of America. So I'm going to close this out and I am going to return back to my work on this other project. But I think I might, I think I might just go ahead for, for the big amateurism uh, monologues podcast, do an episode on how this ACC letter from the student athlete made its way to the United States Congress and how it was legitimized. The timetable here is really, really interesting. I'll have to think about that, but I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 